all be seated. It's good to be here, and I'm excited about what God's doing. I've got a couple housekeeping things that I wanted to, to deal with before I get to the sermon. First of all, last Sunday night, we went out with the flyers, and our goal was to, ha- was to have 10 teams of uh, two or three people each and uh, deliver 60 of these, and I didn't know how long it would take, about 60 or 63 for each team. Uh, it took Susan and I by ourselves about 30 minutes uh, just to, to walk and hang these on doors. We ended up meeting a couple people and interacted with them. But we only had six teams show up, six or seven teams. So we're behind the eight ball already. Uh, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and plan on going out for an hour tonight. And if you can come help with that, we would really appreciate your help. We were able to park on the corner, actually walk one long block, come back, and we'd been to 60 houses already. So uh, if you can help with that, I would appreciate it. Uh, Second, uh, today I wanted to just make mention uh, that our, our pianist, who's been serving for us a little over a year now, she just began her 50th year of life on this earth today. And so celebrate with her. And uh, Tanya McKendry, we appreciate you playing up here. And then finally, I don't know what the heck this moose is doing on my pulpit. I don't know where it came from or who brought it. But it gives me an opportunity. You know, pastors get appreciated a lot. And they, you know, whoever it is, probably Hallmark has come up with Pastor Appreciation Month. So I've gotten a few cards from folks and I appreciate it. But in all honesty, the one who deserves the most appreciation in the pastor's household is not the pastor. It's the pastor's wife. So I assume that that's what this is for. So Susan, why don't you come up here and get this moose off my pulpit? Come on. I want to tell you, I am blessed to share ministry and life with this woman. People have asked me, why a moose? I don't know, but she loves moose for some reason. And I, don't, I honestly don't know where that came from. That was not from me, but it gave me a great chance to brag on her a little bit because she deserves it. Let me lead us in word. Now that I've done the housekeeping stuff, let me just lead us in word of prayer and ask the Lord in particular to speak to us this morning. I'm going to be preaching from a text from Acts that I'm not that excited about, to be honest. Last week, man, I was excited. Uh, this week is a little bit tougher text, and so uh, a little bit tougher subject, but I'm going to be faithful and preach God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we you have just blessed us with life, that we can celebrate life together as a church family, even pain and suffering, ups and downs. Uh, we rejoice because of Jesus. Uh, in him, we have victory over sin. In him, we have a promise of life eternal. And in, in you, Lord, we have the, the hope and the promise of even a better life every single day that we walk on this earth. So we celebrate, worship, and praise Jesus, because he's worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. We love you, Lord. Speak to us through the power of your spirit. So what are to us words on a page or words on a screen come alive and become the life-changing words that come from your throne. Your word, Lord, is what matters. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 6, Isaiah meets the Lord and You hear these words, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood 
seraphim, each one had six wings. Two, with two he covered his face. Two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We worship, we serve, we celebrate, we have the privilege of praying to and entering into a relationship with a holy God. He is holy. Such that his great prophet, the prophet Isaiah, when he had this vision of God, he was moved and he was shaken to, to his core. So you get the sense that he falls down at the throne, before the throne of God, and he cries out, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. We live in a time where we emphasize, because of the privilege that we have through Jesus, to come into a place like this and sit on padded pews and in an air-conditioned building and celebrate and worship a relationship with this holy God, we have seemed to have lost that sense of awe that he is holy. In fact, I think oftentimes we so focus on God's love, which is just as true, which is just as beautiful and just as powerful, that we miss the fact that he is a holy God and cannot dwell where sin dwells, where sin exists. In fact, if you were in one of our growth groups this morning, that was the juxtaposition of the text that we were dealing with. You had a God who hated sin so much that he was pleased to send his son who was crushed for our sin, who died for our sin. And so you see this incredible conflict of, of a holy God who is filled with love. But we, we, we like that big loving God that's you know like a big old Santa Claus that lets us sit on his lap and gives us gifts. We don't really like to focus on that God who tells us that sin will destroy us and disciplines us so that we keep from destroying ourselves because of our own sin. So move with me to the book of Acts. We have celebrated and rejoiced in and I've read through or preached from uh, this prayer in Acts chapter four at least twice as we're working through this series. We, we've looked at it because I think it's a key uh, text for us. It's at the center of, of uh our thoughts for what was going on in the early church, okay? So Acts chapter four, we had that story where, where John and Peter had, had gotten arrested for preaching their faith and they were threatened with their lives and you come to the, the middle of Acts chapter four and they come back to the church and they tell the church, hey, this is what the leaders told us, they're gonna kill us if we keep preaching the name of Jesus and so the church prays and as the church prays, they simply don't pray for safety, they pray for boldness to keep preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit moves and the place is shaken. And, and the scripture says that they boldly continue to go out and preach the gospel. Immediately after that, you have the end of Acts chapter 4 and the Acts chapter 5 that we're going to read today. So we're going to pick up in Acts 4.34. And listen to what God's word says. 
For there was no needy person among them, because all of those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And the land, uh, they laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one, one of the, that the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold, sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. I want to pause there for a moment because I want you to see what's going on in the church. God had moved mightily in Jerusalem. And, and as he moved, uh, it was transforming the hearts and lives of his people to the extent that some of the church members who were some of the wealthier church members sold pieces of property to help take care of the needs of those who were less fortunate than them. Now, I want to I suggest here, I, I want to ex- point out that, that this was not some type of a forced government-imposed redistribution of wealth. I've actually had a professor in class that, that said that this passage says that we as Christians ought to support communism. No, that is not what this passage teaches. What this passage teaches or what it displays to us is three things, and I just wanted to highlight this as the, the introduction, the pre-sermon. First, God's people should care about one another. They should care about each other. They should care about the needs of one another. We should love each other enough that we set out to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this doesn't preclude the fact that we meet the needs of those who aren't believers. But it does suggest that if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be sure that we do what we can to help our brothers and sisters and meet their needs. That doesn't mean we're all going to get everything we want, but it does mean that as a church family, we ought to love on each other enough to meet each other's needs physically, emotionally, spiritually, wherever those needs come from. Second, God's people should be generous. And you see that here. God's people were generous. Those who had means used those means to meet the needs of others. They generously gave some This doesn't say that everybody who owned property went and sold it. But some who owned property sold, and it doesn't say that they sold all their property. But some sold property and then would bring the proceeds and lay it at the apostles' feet to be distributed to take care of the needs of those who were in the church. They were generous in the things that God had given them on this earth. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. And if if we're focused on just building bank accounts and, and gathering goods on this earth, and we're not focused on God's people and God's kingdom and meeting needs, we're going to miss his purposes. So God's people should care for each other, God's people should be generous, and God's people should give from the heart, not because they feel compelled by some authority figure, whether it be a government authority figure or a church authority figure. If you have somebody that is beating you down telling you that you need to sow that seed of faith so that they can get rich, you're listening to the wrong guy. They weren't compelled to give. They gave out of their hearts because God had done a transforming work inside of them and they wanted to give. This is where our story takes a turn, (laughs) because in the next few verses, you're going to see a couple things that are pretty disturbing. One, you see some people who sold a piece of property and just decided to hold some back and then lie about it, and you're going to see God express judgment on them. Read with me Acts chapter 5, the first 11 verses. 
But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it in your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to the people of God. You, know, you have not lied to the people, I'm sorry, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came over all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look at the feet of those who buried your husband. Or look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then a great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. As I said, this is a disturbing, uncomfortable passage. Why do we find it in the midst of all of these cool, celebratory texts about the church moving forward, about the advance of the gospel, about the lost being saved, about, about even the threats on their lives and, and the people of God praying for boldness and standing up and, and you see this march forward. And then you have this couple in the church that fit into this story where you know God is at work through, through the generosity of, of believers. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira who come along and sin against God. And they're not disciplined lightly for it. <laughs> they're disciplined harshly for it. Now, one of the things that I'll point out that you notice in the early beginnings of the church is this broad, these big pictures that set the stage for who God is and how God is going to interact with his people. And I, I believe to some extent that God used Ananias and Sapphira as an example. He made an example out of them for the church's benefit, for our benefit to remind us that this God who is so loving, who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, also hates Sin, And particularly, he hates the sin of pride, and he hates those who, let me put it this way, lack integrity. We're going to get to that in a little bit. What I mean by integrity is they act one way on the outside, but there's something else on the inside. And, and God hates that in us because it puts us in a position where we can't have an open and honest relationship with a holy God. We'll go back to that in a moment. But the first thing that I want you to notice here is that Satan led these people astray. Now, this, this, this passage illustrates the destructive power of sin. But look at what, what Peter says after Ananias came in and spoke to him. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? I want to remind you that we have an enemy 
who hates God's people. He hates the church. And we have an enemy who, who James describes as he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so Satan planted this idea in their heart. Now, I'm going to be, be totally upfront with y'all. The week before I left on vacation, I told y'all a little story on myself. We were talking about this, what God's called us to do to, to uh, uh, make our church, help our church get in a place of financial health, with financial wellness program. And we've asked people to give above and beyond their tithe through the end of December to get at least, their first goal is to have $20,000 in that savings account that covers all of the, the the funds that are out there, like the Hope Fund and, and those that are donor-restricted funds. And when I told you that story, if you'll, if you'll remember, <laughs> what happened was, was I knew when I was first laying that out that God had given me a particular amount that I was supposed to give, and I was supposed to give it to start it out. But I started looking at my own bank account, and I started negotiating with God. And, and, and I remember getting to that point where, if you'll remember the story, I sat there, I was having my quiet time and I was praying about it, and I felt the Lord speak pretty clearly to me and say, this is what I've asked you to give. I didn't ask you to spread it out over three months. This is what I asked you to give and give now. And so I decided, you know what, I can argue with God about it or I can be honest. And I can just do what he's told me to do and trust him. I did, and within 30 minutes, he had already put some money back in my bank account to cover the check that I'd written. It, it was clearly God speaking, but what God required of me was not a portion. He, he didn't want me to stretch it out. He didn't want me to negotiate with him. He spoke and, and, and he asked me to give. I believe that that was the enemy influencing me. Oh, wow. Hey, look at your bank account over here. You can't do that. Oh, look at these circumstances. If you just wait, you know, and you do some next month and some the next month and some the next month, then it'll be easier on you financially. The issue with that was that's not what I knew God had called me to do. And I think that that's what you run into here with Ananias and Sapphira. I don't believe that there was anything wrong with them selling a piece of property and bringing a portion to the church. What was wrong with it is God told them to bring all, and they didn't. Satan put it in their hearts to, you know, we want to, you want to look like Barnabas. You, you want to have the appearance that you're generous like Barnabas. So nobody knows how much you sold that piece of property for. Just bring a portion of it and act like it was all. Pretend that you gave everything to God, even though you're just giving him a portion. The problem with that is, God knew. God knows our sin. Nobody else may know the amount. Nobody else may know the hidden sins of our heart. Nobody else may know those negotiating deals that we do in our own heart with him. But he does. And don't forget that he is a holy, holy, holy God. Satan seeks to lead us astray. And here they were influenced by Satan. What, what was the... How did he influence them the most? Maybe it was pride. We've worked through this text, and I ask a lot of questions here. Why did Ananias and Sapphira do that? They didn't even have to sell the property and bring it, all right? But they, they brought it, and they acted like they were bringing the whole amount. And so maybe it was pride. Maybe they wanted to look like Barnabas. Maybe they wanted people to see what good, upstanding people they were. You know, because in all honesty, folks, how many times... 
we act like that at church around others. We act like somebody that we're not simply because of our pride. And we let our pride get us puffed up. Second, maybe it was greed. Or, as in my case, maybe it was fear. I think oftentimes we're influenced, we're driven by fear. We're afraid that if we do what God's told us to do, that we're going to fail. I was afraid that if I gave what God was calling me to give, that I wasn't going to have enough money to pay my bills or to take care of, or maybe just buy some things I wanted the next week or the next month. The, the point is, sometimes we're just afraid. So the question here is, what is it that's influencing you? What is Satan using to influence you to disobey God? Is it pride? Is it your family? Maybe it's your friends that you're hanging out with. Maybe it's just simply your flesh. You want to do what you want to do, and you don't care what God's called you to do. I've decided that this is what I want to do. I don't know how many times uh, I've seen... Uh, especially young adults, that, that they knew God was telling them, don't go there. And I was guilty of this. I am still sometimes. I know that God's telling me don't go there, but man, I really want to go there. Something in me just draws me there. Something in my flesh. Well, what is it that influences you? What is it that influences me to be disobedient to God? Satan has planted it there. <laughs> Whatever it is, if it's drawn me away from God and it's called me to be disobedient, it is not from God. It's coming for our, from our enemy. Second thing here, so they, they allowed Satan to, to whisper into their hearts and begin to lead them astray. Sounds a lot like what happened to Eve in the garden, doesn't it? Second, they lacked integrity. They did not honestly open up and share the truth once they were confronted. They lied. They brought a portion and acted like it was the whole amount. They lied about it. As I was... a meditating on this passage, my mind went back to a passage that's really familiar to us in, in Psalm chapter 51. We know the story of David, and we know David's horrible sin against God. How he uh, had an affair with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He tried to cover it up, and then he, he lied about it. He tried to... Uh, uh, he ultimately had Uriah killed because of it, and so he compounded sin upon sin upon sin. He went from adultery to, to dishonesty to murder. And he tried all of those things, and yet David is still upheld in a lot of ways in Scripture as a hero. Even in the book of Acts, the Scripture says that David was counted as a man who had the heart of God. Why is that? What is the difference between somebody like Ananias and Sapphira who got zapped immediately and somebody like David? Well, I want you to, to, to hear this from, from David's prayer. When he, when he was confronted with his sin and he was broken over his sin, David says these words. He says, surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me deep, wisdom deep within Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David came to, to, to the Lord with a broken heart and humility. And he cries out, Lord, you desire the truth. You desire integrity. You know, the bottom line is we all sin, don't we? And it's a little scary when you see what God did to Ananias and Sapphira. Because we've all sinned against God. But what God is most concerned about is where your heart is. Are you willing when you sin to come back to God and say, Lord, I sinned. Lord, I messed up big time. I was wrong. 
I'm not here to negotiate. I'm simply here to confess. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm a mess. I need you to cleanse me, and I need you to save me. What God is looking for from his people is not perfection. I want you to hear that. God's not expecting you to be perfect and never sin. But God is desiring a relationship with you, a personal relationship, that when you do sin against him, you're willing to come with integrity and confess it. I don't expect my kids to be perfect. But I do expect them to be honest. I want, I want to see that integrity. Because you can... You can maintain a relationship over a long period of time with integrity. I've messed up as a husband. If I'm willing to confess and say I'm sorry and ask for Susan's forgiveness, that goes a long way in maintaining the relationship. Relationships are not, not usually destroyed by the mistakes. They're destroyed by the cover-ups and the lack of integrity. God hates that lack of integrity, because that destroys our relationship with him. And then the third thing that you see here, and, and in, you see it right there in the text in Acts chapter 5, is not only did they lack integrity, but they just didn't give all. And what God is looking for from his children is that we give our whole heart to him. We don't come and give a portion that we come and give all. You remember the words of Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul? That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 where God told the Israelites the same thing. He said, this is what I'm commanding you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. God doesn't want part of our heart. He wants all of our heart. And far too often, what we want to do is we want to negotiate. Lord, we'll give you part of our life, but we won't give you all of our life. We'll give part of what you've asked of us, but we won't give all of what you've asked of us. If you relate this to giving, as, as it was to Ananias and Sapphira, you see it in, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. One of the complaints that God had against the priest was uh, he had told them that they're, they're, they were supposed to bring a tenth to the altar, and they didn't bring the whole tenth. They would bring a portion of it. And, and God told them, he said, I don't want some of what you have to offer. I want all of it. If you're supposed to bring a tenth, bring a tenth. If you're, if you're going to bring the whole amount of a piece of property that you sold, bring the whole amount of the piece of property. Don't bring part. But I think that this speaks to a spiritual issue more than it does anything else. God's not looking for a part of our heart or a part of our time. He's looking for all of it. Let me, let me quantify this for you in this way. Uh, one of the things that I struggled with was always talking about priorities, especially, you know, as I was maturing as a believer and I thought, you know, I want to put God first in my life and God's going to be first. And then, you know, my, my family's going to be second. And then when I got married, of course, now my wife's going to be second and then my kids and you, know, you, you get all of these priorities in order. And one of the things that I began to run into with that was even when I gave all of my effort to actually keep those priorities straight, 
I, I still had some issues down the line. Because what I would do is I would give God his time. Okay, God, you're first and this is your time. Now this is my time over here with my family. Or this is my time to do this or it's my time to do that. And what I found was that God didn't want to be first. God wanted to be in charge of all of it. So God wanted to be the Lord of my relationship with my wife. And God wanted to be the Lord of my relationship with my kids. And he wanted, to be the, he, he wanted to be in charge of how I spent my money. And he wanted to be in charge even of the time that I had to rest or the time that I had to get away. God wanted to be in all of it. And so he wasn't looking for his time. He was looking to be in charge of it. That's what it means to give God all of our heart and all of our lives. And he's not looking for a portion. He's not looking for a sliver, even if it's the biggest portion. God wants all of us, and he wants to be in charge of each and every part of our lives. And so what you see with Ananias is you saw, you saw people who allowed Satan to begin to whisper in their ear. Scripture says they were influenced by Satan, even to the extent that they, Ananias and Sapphira got together and talked about it. And the evidence comes out throughout the story. They allowed Satan to influence them, and they allowed sin to creep in, and then they decided they were going to lie about it. When they were asked, isn't that what we do, though? We do something stupid. We want to come up with some way to cover it up. Oh, no, no, no. That's not really what I meant. That's not really what I did. Or, or you know, this is what happened. And, you know, as I said already, God already knows your sin. It doesn't do you any good to lie about it. Just be honest with him. And then third, they wanted to give part to God and not all. And God doesn't accept that. He wants all. God, the, the, the lesson that I picked up from this text, and this is what I wanted to deliver to you more than anything else, is just as, as God demanded holiness in the Old Testament, God still demands holiness of his people. We have this idea that once Jesus came, Christianity is nothing but feel-good things. It's all about love, and God loves everybody, and God accepts everything, and you can do whatever you want, and God's going to accept it. But the truth is, God's character has never changed. God is a God of love, certainly, that is put on display on the cross when he sent his son to die for us, but God is also a holy God who hates sin, that's the reason he sent his son to die on a cross for us was because he hated sin and what it did to our relationship with him. And so we have to understand that even the God of the New Testament is a God who is holy and he is a God who loves us enough to discipline his children. And so three quick things here. First of all, God's character demands holiness. First Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, but as the one who called you is holy, so also are you to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That is not an Old Testament text, folks. God expects and demands holiness from his church. And if the church continues to give in to the ways of the world and continues to, to surrender what it means to, to walk a, a holy, righteous life with God and ignore what his word says, the church is going to continue to flounder and fail miserably. God looks at us as his children and says, I expect you to be different I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. 
Now let me remind you, God knows that you're not perfect. And he doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect integrity. And when we fail, when we sin, when we fall flat on our face, what God desires and God expects is for us to honestly confess before him, Lord, I sin. And if we confess our sin before a holy God, 1 John 1, 9 says, he is righteous and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my holiness is not even wrapped up in how good of a person I am. Whether or not I'm holy or not is whether or not I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ and when I sin, I confess my sin and, and continue to live in that relationship with him. God's desire is for us to be holy because his character demands it. Because he is holy, he demands us to be holy. And there's no question about this. God's will is clear on this issue. You can argue what holiness constitutes. When I was growing up as a young Baptist, I was told that holiness meant that you didn't play cards on Sunday. There were several things you didn't do. Uh, you, didn't, you, know, you didn't drink, you didn't smoke. Uh, you, know, you had the whole list of sins. Uh, you didn't dance. It, some of those confused me because I looked at scripture and I said, David danced. Where, where does it preclude going to a baseball game on Sunday? The, the, uh, one of the funniest things I'd read when I first went to May, I was doing some research, and the first ever Brown Baptist Association meeting was held in May, Texas, back in the early 1900s. I think it was 1907. And in the minutes from that meeting, one of the number one things on the agenda was that they were voting to condemn playing baseball or watching baseball on Sundays. Now, I, I am against baseball on Sundays at middle of August at the old Globe Life park when it's 110 degrees out there at two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm, I'm against that baseball on Sunday and, and maybe we ought to Baptist vote to condemn that. But I think what we do is we just pick sins that we don't like and vote to condemn them. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not holiness. Holiness is seeking to walk in a relationship with the living God and remain in that relationship with Jesus, even that when we do sin against God, that we're walking in a relationship that we confess it and are cleansed of our sin. That also means that as I grow in my faith, there may be new things that God points out in my life and says, I want you to remove that from your life. Holiness means I say, yes, Lord, and, and let him take that out of my life. Because I don't expect a, a, a new believer or a young believer to be perfect or to, to, to be as holy as somebody who's walked with the Lord for 40 years. We ought to continue to grow and we ought to continue to allow God to weed out the garbage out of our lives. So God's will is clear that he desires that we walk in holiness. We could argue over what that means for any given individual. But ultimately, scripture is clear about a lot of things that we like to muddy up for our own benefit. And then finally here, and this is the scary part, God's discipline is certain. Now, I doubt that anybody in this room is gonna be face the kind of discipline that Ananias and Sapphira faced as God made an example of them in the early church. You know, if, if you come and, 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 and you, know, you, <laughs> you bring a gift to our treasure and, and say, hey, uh, God told me to give this certain amount, and you know in your heart God told you to give a different amount, and, and you lie, I don't think that God's going to strike you dead right there. We don't see God continuing to act like that. But what we do understand is that God disciplines those whom he loves. 
And there's no question about that. God will discipline his children. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, hey, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. If you face discipline from the Lord for your sin, remember it's because he loves you and he cares about you. I believe that God still disciplines his children. I believe that I've seen actually as a pastor, and you know these things you can't prove, but I believe I've seen a handful of cases where someone has walked so far away from the Lord. And I knew, I knew, I knew that they were believers. Kirby's been in ministry long enough, he probably has seen this too. They were believers, they, they had a relationship with God. They turned their backs on God and walked so far away that God took them home rather than allow them to continue to drag his name through the mud on this earth. I believe I've seen that. God disciplines those whom he loves and he punishes us. Scripture's clear about that. So remember, as you worship a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die a brutal, horrible death to take upon himself your sin and my sin, to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could have eternal life. Even the cross, even that act, that violent act of the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, even that act puts on display both the love of God for his children and the wrath of God against sin and his his holiness. There's not a single one of us who in our own goodness could step into the, the throne room of heaven and stand before a holy God because we have all sinned. Just like Solomon said in his prayer, Lord, when they sin, because they all will, <laughs> forgive them. There's not a single one of us who can stand in our own righteousness before God. But he, God has offered a gift to every single one of us that if we would put our faith and trust in his son and what he did on the cross for us, the blood that Jesus said, the, the, the blood that Jesus shed satisfies that wrath of God, that holiness that God desires so that he cleanses us of our sins so that we step into the throne room of God not in our righteousness but in the righteousness of Christ covered by his blood. You know what? That's why Matthew loves to sing all those songs about what Jesus has done because it's not about what I can do or what you can do. It's about what Christ has done on our behalf. His shed blood covers our sin and satisfies the holiness of God. So what God is asking of us as we walk in a relationship with him is to walk with his son, to be covered by his blood. And when we sin, to confess our sin and to show that integrity that he's looking for with a broken heart and receive that cleansing that can only come from the throne of God. God is a holy God who demands holiness from his people. And there will never be revival in our churches or in our land, 
until we desire and turn back to God who is holy. I want you to stand with me and I want to lead us in a word of prayer. So Matthew and the praise team are going to come and they're going to lead us in a time of response. And one of the reasons that we have this time of response is just for you to, to allow the, the word of God that's been proclaimed to you to marinate in your heart and in your soul. It may be God is speaking to you. And during these moments, he's calling you to lay down a sin. Or maybe he's calling you to come to the altar and confess your sin before him, a holy God. Or it may very well be that there's someone here who you know that if you were to die today, that you'd be lost in your sin, that you would not be able to stand before a holy God cleansed by the blood of Christ because you have never accepted that gift of eternal life that God's offering you. If that's you, I would plead with you today to, to cry out to God and say, Lord, your word's right. I'm a sinner. And I need you to cleanse me and to save me that I might be made holy by you. If you don't, if you have never done that, if you've never confessed your sin and confessed Christ's righteousness and put your faith and trust in him for your eternal life, do it today. And I'd love to hear from you. Kevin and I would be standing at the front if you have any questions. We actually have some decision counselors that can sit down and talk to you about it. But if God's calling you to make that kind of decision today, don't leave here before you do. And finally, God may be calling you to become a part of this church family. And if, if you believe that publicly God's calling you to, to make that known, uh, we'll be here to talk to you about how you can do that as well. So during these moments, as Matthew begins to lead as you come, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Even though it's difficult to grasp sometimes and difficult to understand, Lord, you are a holy God. And you expect holiness and righteousness and most of all, integrity from your children. Father, I pray that today's message would speak to our hearts and draw us closer to you, a God who both loves us, but a God who is righteous. We pray in Jesus' name.